in my hand here a gold nugget that I found by chance just a few years back. You can imagine my surprise at finding this nugget. You can see it's quite a large nugget. It weighs about three ounces altogether. It's been confirmed to contain about 30% gold. So this makes this nugget of gold worth roughly $1,500, $1,600 on today's gold market. You can imagine my reaction when I found this nugget by chance. Actually, I'm making all that up. This is not really a gold nugget. This is a substance called carbon pyrite, better known as fool's gold. Looks a lot like gold. It's very interesting, very shiny. Um, but other than being interesting and shiny, it's, it's basically worthless. Now I'm holding in my hand a one-ounce American Eagle gold coin, verified and confirmed by the United States Treasury to be one ounce of pure gold worth between fifteen and $1,600 on today's gold market. Quite a difference between these two things, wouldn't you say? And quite a different reaction had I found one by chance as, compo- as opposed to finding the other. Quite a contrasting reaction to finding those two things. Scripture often presents us with contrasts just like that. In fact, even more profound and drastic than that. And when Scripture presents us with contrasts like this, we should be paying attention because there's always a teaching moment within the contrasts that Scripture shows us. Luke has already shown us several times that he likes to present contrasts to us as teaching points. For example, the contrast that he presented between Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira between the ends of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. Remember that contrast between Barnabas and then Ananias and Sapphira. Today... We come to another contrast that is just as profound. This is the contrast between two fundamentally different types of conversions. Contrasting conversions. We'll read today of the conversion of Simon the Magician. And then next week, Luke will contrast that with a completely different contrast, the, uh, or, or different conversion. He will contrast it with the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. And then the following week, he'll drive the point home with the, con- with the uh, conversion of Saul of Tarsus. And so contrasting conversions are the topic of the next few passages. Let's begin reading from verse 4. We're in Acts chapter 8, beginning verse 4. And we're going to continue down through verse 25, although we'll spend our time between verses 9 and 25. Beginning from verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, They were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. 
Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me that the Lord, to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word to the Lord, the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. The passage that we look at today is a very interesting passage. It's interesting for at least three reasons. First of all, it's interesting because we seem to have a conversion here that is suspect, that we have reason to doubt. Secondly, it's interesting because it seems that a leader of the early church was fooled, tricked. Philip, who's not an apostle, but he is a leader of the early church, and he appears to be fooled by Simon. Thirdly, it's interesting because we have here something that never occurs anywhere else in all of Scripture, nor does it ever occur anywhere else in the history of the church. We have New Testament, truly converted believers in Jesus Christ who have not received the Holy Spirit. That occurs nowhere else in all of Scripture, nor in the history of the church. There's one episode that we'll come to in chapter 19 that is vaguely vaguely similar to this. That's when Paul is in Ephesus. And he comes upon some disciples there who have, don't have the Holy Spirit. But he quickly realizes that they've never heard of Jesus or believed in Jesus. They are disciples of John. And so Paul tells them about Jesus. They believe and they're converted and, and they receive the Holy Spirit. But that is, of course, a different type of episode. This is the only instance in which people in the New Testament church under the New Covenant have believed in Jesus Christ and not received the Spirit of Christ, or the Holy Spirit. Let's just remind ourselves, the words of Paul, when he teaches us that the receiving of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, is simultaneous and virtually synonymous with salvation. He says to the Romans, in Romans 8, verse 9, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So Paul says there that, that having the Spirit of Christ, or the Holy Spirit, and belonging to Christ, or receiving salvation, are so close that they're virtually synonymous. They're they're inseparable. The Holy Spirit is so active in our salvation. He convicts us. He he writes the Word of God that is used to bring us conviction. He he brings us understanding of the Word of God through which we receive conviction. He brings us to repentance. He grants repentance to us. He converts us and then He indwells us. All those are the work of the Holy Spirit. He is so involved in our salvation that literally salvation and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit are inseparable in the new covenant. 
Let's not forget what he says to the Ephesians in Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So in Paul's way of thinking, there's no such thing as New Testament believers who don't have the Spirit of Christ because they are so closely intertwined with one another. So the question is, why is it that we have here New Covenant believers, converted believers in Jesus Christ who have not received the Holy Spirit? We need to first answer that question before we can tackle the text. So I think the answer to this comes to us in two, two areas, so to speak, by thinking of two things. First of all, thinking on where we are in the book of Acts and what the book of Acts is. And secondly, by thinking on who it is that's been converted and who has brought to them the gospel that has converted them. So let's think on these two things, and I, and I believe we'll see why it is that these believers have not received the Holy Spirit. First of all, the book of Acts, as we've said many times before, is a, is a very transitional type of book. It is transitioning us from the Gospels to the Epistles. It's transitioning us from the physical presence of Jesus Christ in the Gospels to the mediated presence of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. It's transitioning us from Jesus' promise of the church to the reality of the church. And so as such, it's a very transitional book, especially the first ten chapters. The first ten chapters of Acts are extraordinarily transitional in nature. And so as such, we should not take anything in the first ten chapters of Acts as being normative for the New Testament church in the sense that whatever we find in the first ten chapters of Acts that we don't find anywhere else in the New Testament church, we should consider those things to be not normal occurrences for the church, not normal church life, but instead very transitional in nature. For example, for example, we should not expect another event like Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. We should not expect the Holy Spirit to fall in visible form and tongues of fire and rushing wind. We shouldn't expect that to happen today. That was a one-time event that will not be re- re- repeated. We should not expect healing miracles to take place at the hands of the ministers of, of the Word of God today. We sh- that, that was something that was very transitional. We've talked about the reason that God performed so many miracles at the hands of the apostles. He was validating their testimony because the Scriptures were not yet written. And so we've talked about the reasons for that, how that's so transitional. We should not expect today preachers or pastors to be able to heal folks with their words like this. We should not expect, for example, people to fall over dead who lie about how much they're giving to God, such as Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5. These things that we see in the first 10 chapters that we only see here and we don't see outside of these 10 chapters, we should not consider that these things should be repeated. We would be abusing the Word of God to suggest that if we have enough faith and we just pray hard enough, that we will have another Pentecost event today. We won't. That was a one-time thing that God performed in transition between the Gospels and the Epistles. They're transitioning between the physical presence of Jesus Christ and the mediated presence of Jesus Christ. And so that helps us to answer the question. We have here in chapter 8 a one-time occurrence of New Testament believers who haven't received the Holy Spirit because this is transitional in nature. That helps us to answer the question. But... 
it doesn't completely answer the question for us. We're still left with the question, why? For what purpose? <clears throat> and I think we can answer that part of the question by reminding ourselves of who it is that's being converted and who it is that is bringing the gospel to these people. This is, the, of course, the Samaritans. And what do we know about the Samaritans and the Jews? They didn't like each other, right? They, they uh, um, dis- disliked one another very strongly, right? And you know what the, was the root, what was the center of their disdain for one another? It was, you don't have to know anything about Samaritan or Jewish history to know this. You just simply have to read your Bible because the Bible tells us very clearly what is the, at the center of the hatred between the Samaritans and the Jews. It comes to us in John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, there's an encounter between a Jew and a Samaritan. The Jew, of course, is Jesus. The Samaritan is the woman at the well. And this encounter occurs between this, the Jew and the Samaritan, and there is a conversation that takes place. In the course of this conversation, the Samaritan woman realizes that she is talking with a Jew who is also a prophet. And immediately she has a question for him. John chapter 4, verse 19. The woman said to Jesus, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And look at what is the first thing out of her mouth. Verse 20. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So she realizes he's a Jewish prophet. And the first thing she wants to ask him is, Where is worship of God supposed to take place? Where are the true people of God? Can God be worshipped here, or does He have to be worshipped in Jerusalem? In other words, are, can, are we the true people of God? Are we worshipping God truly here? Or is that only in Jerusalem? So, at the center of this rift between Samaritans and Jews is the Jewish claim on exclusivity of the worship of God and the exclusivity of the people of God. And the Samaritans believe that they are the true people of God and that their worship of God there in Samaria is just as valid as the Jews' worship of God in Jerusalem. Now, take all of that and import it into Acts chapter 8. Here comes Philip, who is... Remember who Philip is? Philip is a Jew, but he's not a Hebrew Jew. He is a Greek Jew. And so here comes this Greek person, uh, preaches the gospel to them. They believe in Jesus Christ. They receive uh, salvation. And, and think now, if the Holy Spirit had fallen upon them at that point, then knowing the history between these two groups of people, what probably would have happened? We would have had perhaps two churches. Certainly the Samaritans would have, would have thought that it would be very proper for them to just establish their own church here in Samaria. We would have had the, the, the first Southern Baptist Church of Jerusalem and the First Independent Baptist Church of Samaria. You see, because they already, they, they already think like that. They already think of themselves as a separate group of, of Yahweh worshipers. And so if the gospel had come to them at the hands of a non-Hebrew and the Holy Spirit had fallen upon them, then they would have just continued right on and brought that thinking into the New Testament church. But God is intent here on establishing one church, one church. And so he very carefully does not give his Holy Spirit until what happens? The apostles come and the apostles pray and the apostles lay hands on them. In other words, the Samaritans are under apostolic authority. Jewish, Hebrew, apostolic authority. 
And so you see how careful God is here to establish one church, one people, one people of God. Again, this will not be repeated. This is not something that we should expect to take the gospel to, to people who have ever never heard about Jesus and they don't receive the Holy Spirit until some apostle figure comes and lays hands on them. We should not expect this to be repeated. It was a one-time occurrence for God to show them this is one church, one spirit, one people. And so now that we've answered that, we can now begin to tackle the teaching in the passage. Let's, let's look quickly verses 4 through 8. Verses 4 through 8, we remember this from last time. Philip is here, he's preaching the word um, in Samaria. He's preaching Christ to them. He's doing what the New Testament church understands to be its primary role. The primary function of the New Testament church is to preach and teach the word of God. Philip is doing that, and along with that is coming all of these signs and wonders. Uh, Demons are being cast out, and uh, unclean spirits and paralyzed people being healed, lame people are walking. There's, there's tremendous joy over this in all the city. And then verse 6, because of all of this, the crowds with one accord are paying attention to Philip. Now verse 9, we are introduced to this man Simon, who had previously practiced magic, and he had amazed the people of Samaria, you see. He was the one who was the center of attention. People were paying attention to him. Verse 11, they paid attention to Simon because of the long time that he had amazed them uh, with his magic. And so they believed Simon was this powerful magician. They were amazed by him. He was the center of attention. They listened to him. He was respected. He was um, well-recognized. And here comes Philip, who now is preaching the word of, of Christ, but he's also doing these signs and wonders that appear to be so much more powerful or real than Simon, and everybody's now paying attention to him. So you see the context here. You see what's, what's happening between Simon and Philip. Simon is a magician, right? And what, who are magicians? What do magicians do? Magicians are professional liars, professional deceivers. That's what they do. They deceive people. Magic is not real. Magic tricks are not real. I'm sorry to tell you, if you thought that people really were sawed in half and uh, the Statue of Liberty really did disappear, I'm sorry, those are all tricks. Magic is trickery, it's foolery, it's deception. And so this Simon was very good at deception. He was good at deceiving people. And because he was so good at deception, he was the center of attention. And people paid attention to him and recognized him. But now Philip seems to be doing things that are far more powerful, even real. Simon knows that what he does is not real, but he he perhaps perceives that what Philip is doing is real. And so, um, verse 11, they pay attention to him for a long time. Verse 12, uh, Philip preaches the good news, and then people are believing, being baptized. Verse 13, Simon himself believes... And he's baptized, and he continued with Philip, or he followed Philip, or in New Testament, or um, uh, uh, in modern language, he um, joined the church, right? He continued with Philip, followed Philip, joined the church, and um, then verse 14, the apostles down in Jerusalem hear about this. A word comes to them of this revival going on in Samaria, and so they send agent number one and agent number two, Peter and John, up to Samaria with instructions, go find out what's going on up there. So Peter and John go up there. They, they realize, hey, this really is a revival. The Samaritan people really are receiving the word of God. They really are receiving Christ. But somehow, we don't know, Luke doesn't tell us, 
But somehow, Peter and John immediately perceive that although they have received Jesus Christ, they haven't received the Holy Spirit. How do they know that? We don't know. Luke doesn't tell us. Maybe it has something to do with speaking in tongues or, the, or uh, some other sign that's not being manifested. We don't know. But, but somehow, Peter and John right away knew that the Spirit hadn't been given to them. And so um, they pray for them, lay hands on them, and then the Spirit is received. And then Simon sees all this. Now, if what Philip was doing was pretty cool, then what Peter and John did were extra cool. And so Simon now is overcome by all of this. He, he was um, intrigued and amazed by Philip, but he, is, he has got to have the secret of Peter and John. Because, I mean, think of what that would do to his career. I mean, he was a pretty big-time guy here in Samaria. But man, if he could learn Philip's tricks, and if he could learn Peter and John's tricks, then, well, he would, uh, the sky would be the limit. And so he offers money for the secret, so to speak, of this laying on of hands. Uh, he offers money so that, he, so that I can lay my hands on whoever I want, and they would receive the Spirit, says verse, in verse uh, 18, so he, or 19. It says, give me this power, and I'll pay you. I'll give you money for this, because, again, he's a magician. And how do magicians learn their tricks? Magicians learn their tricks from other magicians. And so he thinks, well, it's only fair. I'll, I'll pay you a fair price for this. So he offers this money. By the way, by the way, have you noticed how often Luke is showing us that money and the greed of money is opposed to the gospel? Luke is showing us this over and over. Think back to chapter 1. Judas, his greed was the cause of his downfall in chapter 1. Chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, their greed were the cause of their immediate death. Um, we have here Simon's greed in chapter 8. Then we, if we think forward to chapter 16, Paul and uh, Silas are in Philippi. And you remember the slave girl, the fortune-telling slave girl who's following them around everywhere? And um, Paul sort of gets annoyed by this, and so he casts the demon out of her. Well, then her owner doesn't like that too much because then his source of income kind of dries up when his fortune-telling slave girl can no longer tell fortunes. So he has Paul and Silas beat up and thrown in jail. And then uh, we fast forward to chapter 19. Paul's in Ephesus, and he's preaching the gospel, and he's putting the idol makers out of business. And so the idol makers don't like that. They get together. They have Paul beat up again, thrown in prison again. You see how Luke is consistently showing us that greed is opposed to the gospel. Simon's greed is opposed to the gospel. So he offers money. Then verse 20, we see Peter's reaction. Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you. Uh, because you thought you could t- obtain the gift of God with money. May your silver perish with you. Would you like me to tell you literally what Luke says, Peter said? Our Bible translations really soften it up for us. But literally, Luke says to us that Peter says, to hell with you and your money. Now, if that offends you, then keep in mind, all I'm doing is telling you exactly what the Word of God says. And, and can't we just hear Peter saying that? We know Peter well enough, don't we? To just hear that. That sounds like Peter, doesn't it? You see how the Bible is so true to life? It's true to life, isn't it? The Bible's not filled with fairy tales and Disney characters. It's filled with real people. 
And real people, such as Peter, use language such as that. And so the Bible's true to life here. Here's, here goes Peter, may your, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. The gift of God. The Holy Spirit is the gift of God and gifts cannot be bought because if they are, they're not gifts. And so the Holy Spirit is the gift of God. He's not a thing that can be bought. He's, the, he's a person. And he can't be bought. He's the free gift of God. Ephesians 2.8 By grace you've been saved through faith, not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. And so a gift cannot be bought. It cannot be a purchase. Nothing that God has is for sale. And by the way, if it was, if anything that God had was for sale, what would we buy it with? I think everything is God's already. And so this is the gift of God. You can't buy it with money. Verse 21, you have neither part nor lot in this matter. It's very interesting that we find exactly the same words one more time in Scripture. Um, And this also occurs in a conversation that Peter is part of, only Peter's not doing the speaking here. It comes in John chapter 13, the upper room, the the foot washing episode, you remember? uh, Jesus is washing the apostles' feet. He comes to Peter. Peter says, "Uh uh-uh, you ain't washing my feet. Then verse 18 Jesus says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Now, I know in the English that's not exactly the same words, but in the original that's exactly the same words. I think Peter remembered those words, don't you? I think when Peter was sitting there and the Lord Jesus was at his feet to wash his feet and he said those words of rebuke to him, I think that made an impression on Peter and he remembered that for the rest of his life because he uses the exact same words to rebuke Simon here as well. So verse 21, you have neither part nor lot in this this matter for your heart is not right before God. Your heart is not right before God. 22, repent of this wickedness Pray that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. The intent of your heart. Again, the Bible is reminding us that the intentions of our heart are important. The intentions of our heart, the motives of our heart, the reason why we do things is just as sinful as what we do. So repent, maybe it can be forgiven you. Verse 23, I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. It doesn't sound to me like language that the Bible usually uses in connection with believers. Verse 24, Simon answers, um, Pray for me, that nothing of what you said may come upon me. So, I think that when we put all this together and we ask the question, was Simon really converted? I think the answer is clear. No, he was not. Peter speaks to him with language that the Bible uses for unbelievers. Peter says, your heart is not right with God. Simon has no understanding of the Holy Spirit. He has no understanding of repentance. He cannot even pray for himself. Peter says, what you need to do, brothers, you need to hit your knees and start praying. And he can't do that. He says, well, why don't you do it for me? And so we look at all this and we say, this man was not converted. This man was not a believer. But... What about the signs that he showed? He displayed three signs of salvation, didn't he? What were the three signs? He confessed belief. He was baptized. And he continued with Philip or followed Philip or joined the church. Three signs of true belief. And those three signs 
fooled Philip, tricked Philip, didn't it? Philip was tricked. Now, let's not be hard on Philip. Philip is younger in his faith right now than the apostles. I think this is probably Philip's first revival. And so he was probably pretty easy to trick. But also he was also, I think, eager to see the conversion of Simon. I mean, certainly there was a tremendously exciting time. People are being brought to faith in Christ. Certainly Philip wanted Simon to be converted. And when you want to find something, can't that thing be easier to find? Isn't it easy to see that thing in those things that maybe aren't quite there? You know what I'm talking about? Like this nugget, for example. Would you want, if you saw this lying in the grass, would you want this to be a gold nugget? And so I think Philip truly wanted the conversion of Simon. This is a warning for us today. This is why Scripture teaches us to not be very quick in placing newly converted believers into leadership positions in the church. But instead, their faith must be tested and demonstrated to be real and to be true. We must not quickly put um, new believers into positions of leadership. Think of the disaster. What if Philip had said to Simon, Hey, Simon, um, right over here, there's another group of Samaritans over there. They haven't heard the gospel yet. You go and tell them. What a disaster that would have been. Or think of, what if Philip were here, well, I'm sorry, what if Simon were here today? What if Simon came among us today? Next Sunday morning, Simon shows up. And he's somebody we all know. He's um, very well known around town. He's, he's the guy, he deals in black magic and um, a lot of people know who he is. He's very popular. He's, he's involved with the occult and dark things and all these sinful... And, and, and he comes to our church and he confesses belief and we baptize him. What would we do with him? We'd make him a poster boy, wouldn't we? Come and see what God has done to the person who used to deal in black magic and the occult. Right? We should be careful. We should be very careful, especially when putting new, newly converted believers into positions. And so we see this with Simon. We see the truth here that not all who follow Jesus Christ belong to Him. We see the truth of Matthew 13, the story of the wheat and the tares, that there, there is the wheat of God, but in with, mixed in with the wheat are tares that at, at times are very hard to tell the difference between them and wheat. We see the truth here that where the gospel is preached, two things always happen. Where the gospel is preached, true believers are born and false believers are hatched. Wherever the gospel is preached, true believers are born and counterfeit believers are hatched. We see all that truth. But what about the three signs? Doesn't it say in verse 13 that Simon himself believed? And if we turn over to Romans 13, doesn't Paul tell us that that is all that is needed for salvation? If we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth, which it appears Simon did, then we will be saved. And then what about the other son? Baptism and, and the fact that he continued with Philip. Doesn't that show us that Simon truly was converted? It, it does not. First of all, let's look at the first sign. Simon believed. Simon had faith. Does faith save us? 
It does not. Faith does not save anyone because faith for itself does, is not salvific. Is not, it cannot save anyone. Faith for the sake of faith doesn't save. Faith placed in the right thing, Jesus Christ, saves. We can believe all day long, but if we're believing in the wrong thing, then it doesn't matter how sincerely we believe that thing, it, of course, does not save, right? So Simon believed. The question is, what did Simon believe in? Simon believed in the miracles that he saw. He believed that Philip was performing mighty things. He believed that the things that Philip was doing was of a whole different nature than what he was doing. He probably even believed in Philip's God. He probably even believed that Philip's God was a great God, maybe the only God. But he didn't believe the gospel. He didn't believe that he was a sinner. He didn't believe that he was in desperate need of a relationship with God. He didn't believe that Jesus Christ came and substituted his righteousness for Simon's sin. He didn't believe the gospel. There's, interestingly... There's a parallel episode that happens over in John chapter 2. John chapter 2, the context of John chapter 2 is that Jesus has just turned the water to wine. In other words, this was his first miracle that he performed. The wedding at Cana, he turns the water to wine. Then in verse um, 23 of John chapter 2. Now, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in His name when they saw the signs that He was doing. But Jesus, on His part, did not entrust Himself to them because He knew all people. Translation, Jesus performed mighty miracles and people believed in Jesus. But that was not the same as saving faith. They believed in His miracles. They believed in the things He was doing, sure. But Jesus knew their hearts, and so he did not entrust himself to them. In other words, he didn't give himself to them. They, weren't, they were not his sheep. Belief in miracles saves no one. Belief in the gospel does. And so Simon believes. He just doesn't believe the gospel. And because he doesn't believe the gospel, there is no heart change And so when Simon is baptized, his baptism is worthless. Because what is baptism? Baptism is just an outward display of what's happened in our hearts. And if nothing's happened in our hearts, then the outward display is worthless. I fear there may be some here this morning who have that outward display in your life. And that outward display was just as worthless in your life as the life of Simon. Because it did not flow from a heart change. So Simon believed, but he believed the wrong thing. He was baptized into a worthless baptism and he continued with Philip. He followed Philip. Why why was he following Philip? He was following Philip to learn what Philip was doing so that he could once again become the center of attention. You see, Simon's life lacked evidence of salvation. He lacked evidence of repentance. He lacked evidence of a true life change. He confessed belief He was baptized and he joined the church. Yet, he was outside the fold of God. I wonder if there may be those listening to me this very moment.
who are just like Simon. You have confessed belief. You have been baptized. You have continued with the church. And yet, you are lost. God's church will always have wheat and it will always have tares. It will always have true believers and it will always have this counterfeit believers. So just very quickly in the last few minutes here, let me just apply this passage to our lives today in three ways. There's a hundred ways we could apply this, but let me just take three ways and apply this to our lives. First application that we see here is a warning to beware of seeking the Spirit of God in order to gain the power that comes from it or the influence that comes from it or the recognition that comes from it. This is what Simon does. He seeks the Holy Spirit. He tries to buy the Holy Spirit for the power that comes with it, for the anointing that comes with it, for the recognition from others that comes with it, for the ability to lay his hands on other people and they receive the Spirit. Simon tries to buy the power of God with money. He tries to buy the Holy Spirit with money. What an absurd, ridiculous Foolish thing for Simon to do. We would never do anything like that today, right? We do it every day. It's all around us. It's everywhere. You need only to turn on quote-unquote Christian television to see this, and you don't even need to have it on long before you see the, the 1995 holy water, the 995 holy handkerchief, you name it. All of that is the same. This is the same stuff trying to buy the power of God, trying to buy the anointing of God, trying to buy the recognition that comes from the anointing of God. And of course, we would never do anything like that, would we? Well, um, <clears throat> perhaps we wouldn't do something like that, but, but um, what about something like, uh, oh, I don't know, um, the prayer of Jabez? Remember that a few years back? The prayer of Jabez? Pray this prayer every day and God will enlarge your territory. Hogwash. It's the same thing. It's trying to buy the power of God, trying to buy the anointing with God. Not with money, but with your works, with your deeds. Well, what about um, what we do for the kingdom of God? The roles that we serve in the church, the things that we do for the kingdom of God. Have any of us ever done those things for the recognition that comes from them, from the power that comes from them? Have any of us ever done those things? Have any of us ever served the kingdom of God for the recognition from others that comes from it? Have any of us ever served the kingdom of God for the power that comes from serving in the kingdom of God, from leadership positions? Have any of us ever done that? And before you get holier than your neighbor... And let me remind everyone here, every Christian in this room has done that at one point or another. Every one of us. At some point, every Christian has served the kingdom for the recognition that comes from it. Or from the power that comes from it. From the influence that comes from it. All of us have done that at some point or another. So that's the first application. Beware of seeking the Spirit in order to obtain the power or the influence or the anointing or the recognition that comes from it. Secondly, 
Beware of passing the buck for spiritual growth. Beware of passing the spiritual buck. This is what, this is what um, Simon does. In verse 24, uh, verse 23, uh, Peter says to him, here's what you've got to do. You, gotta, you, you need to pray. And then um, verse 24, Simon answers, well, will you do this for me? Simon passes the spiritual buck to Peter. Peter tells Simon what he needs to do. Simon doesn't do it. Instead, he asks for Peter to do it for him. He passes the buck on to Peter. You need to do this for your salvation. Will you do it for me? So beware of passing the spiritual buck. Beware of passing the spiritual buck for your spiritual growth. You know, it's an old joke. Everybody knows this joke. The joke is that um, it's the pastor's job to do my praying for me. It's the pastor's job to do my Bible study for me. It's the pastor's job to do my witnessing to lost people for me, right? It's a big joke, right? You're familiar with the joke. The problem with jokes is they're usually based in reality. Beware of passing the spiritual buck. Beware of passing the responsibility for your spiritual growth onto anyone else. No one else is responsible for your spiritual growth except for you. So that's the second application. The, the third application that I see, and we'll close with this one, is let's just recognize how close Simon came to salvation and yet didn't get it. How close he came. Think of how close Simon was to eternal life. He heard the gospel. He saw it. He saw the signs and wonders and miracles. He was amazed by it. He was baptized. He confessed belief. He joined the church. How close he was. And yet he fell short. Simon's like the guy in the movies. You know the movies where they're chasing the bad guy across the, the uh, tops of buildings in a city and supposedly these buildings are so close together you can jump from one roof to the next and, and they're jumping from roof to roof and what always happens is, is somebody almost makes it. They miss by just an inch or two. But they may as well have missed by ten feet. Simon was so close. How tragic. It is indeed very tragic to think of the 2.4 or 2.5 billion people on the planet today who have never heard an understandable presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who will live their entire lives without ever hearing of that gospel, and they will die and they will enter into an eternity of hell because of that. That is tragic. But in a way, it's almost more tragic for those who have heard and have come so close and yet did not believe, did not enter in. I fear that there are some of those hearing me right now. You have come so close, yet your heart is so hard. Simon followed Philip. But Simon did not know why he was following Philip. Simon did not know the purpose for following Philip. There's a true story that's told of Yogi Berra. You know Yogi Berra. I think he's passed, passed away now. But Yogi Berra was a, um, 
he was a catcher. And he just he had a way with words. He, Yogi Berra could, could take words that were nonsense and make sense out of them and take words that made a lot of sense and make nonsense out of them. He just had a way with words, which made him perfect for being a, a catcher because that's what a catcher does, right? The catcher, a catcher has to, to uh, uh, give a lot of junk to the batter, right? He tries to get into the batter's mind. He's, he's got to talk about the batter's mama. He's got to say that the batter swings like a girl. You know, that's what a catcher sort of does. Well, Yogi Berra was very good at this. Well, a true story is told of <clears throat> the day when Yogi Berra was catching behind Hank Aaron. Hank comes up to the plate, and Yogi Berra starts in on him, and he's telling Hank Aaron that he's holding his bat wrong. He says, you're, you're holding your bat wrong, Hank. The, the writing on your bat has to face your shoulder. You've got to turn the writing around. Your, the writing is facing wrong. Look at it, Hank. It's, it's facing the wrong way. You've got to twist your, your bat around, trying to get into Hank's head, trying to distract him, trying to make him think about his bat instead of what he's doing, you know. Well, of course, Hank Aaron knocks it out of the park. Runs around the bases, tags home plate, heading to the dugout, stops and turns around and says to Yogi, Yogi, I didn't come here to read. Hank knew why he was there. He knew his purpose for being there. I wondered, do you know your purpose for being here? Are you here? Because this, this is the right thing to do. Good people come to church on Sunday morning. It is right to come to church on Sunday morning. Is that why you're here? If that's why you're here, I'm glad you're here. But please understand that coming into the assembly of God's people because it's the right thing to do is a work. And works save no one. Are you here for the right reason? Do you know your purpose for being here? Are you here because your heart has been changed and it now flows with such a love for Jesus Christ that you cannot help but to be away from His worship and from His people? Do you know why you're here this morning?